welcome to Walk in the Truth podcast. This season of messages takes us through some of the great comeback stories in the Bible. Pastor John Metter of Cross City Church will show us how God can take any situation in any life and bring hope and victory out of hardship. These messages will inspire you to trust God in your own challenging seasons. Well, it's so good to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, take them to 2 Kings, if you would, in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 20. When God takes us to the brink is a chapter that deals with a man named Hezekiah, a king in the Old Testament who was given a death sentence upon his life. And uh, it's quite an incredible story that has so many lessons for us today. And by the way, this is the last message of the God Not Done With You uh, series. And uh, we've enjoyed walking through that. It's, it's been a, a real blast to write the book in the first place and then be able to walk through it in all of our campuses with uh, these stories. And I hope they blessed you. I hope they encourage you in the days ahead. But this one will really encourage you because when God takes us to the brink, we really need to know what it means to depend on God. Now, a brink is a place where you uh, take one more step and you move into a whole different realm of life. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Would you raise your hand if you've been to the Grand Canyon? And I love the Grand Canyon, been a number of times. And uh, I've always <clears throat> enjoyed going to the brink of one of those cliffs at the Grand Canyon where you're really looking off over the precipice down in, into hundreds and thousands of feet down to the bottom. Uh, it kind of gives you a queasy feeling to stand on the side of that because in many places in the Grand Canyon, there are no guardrails. There are no fences. There are no ways to keep you from falling if you go a step too far. Now, I can say this. I'm not afraid of heights, but I'm afraid of falling from great heights, right? <laughs> it's not how high up you are. It's what happens on the way down that I'm so worried about and, on, and what happens that stops you at the bottom. But what happens when life is like that? What happens when you're on the brink of something that is unchangeable, at least to your perspective? It's final and catastrophic. What happens when you are at the brink of death, for example, the way Hezekiah life will have shown us as we read it? It wasn't so many months ago that my wife and I were sitting across the table from a group of ladies from our church that are affectionately known as the Bosom Buddies. <laughs> and they're known for that because they've all faced breast cancer. They faced it during some of the same eras, some of the same seasons of life. And I'd heard stories of their journey before, but I'd never sat down with them and talked to them about that journey and what it meant and what it meant to be at the brink of life and death. They shared with me the stories of shock and surprise, uh, the, the idea that this is really happening to me, and, and they began to think thoughts like, what happens to my family? What happens to me? Uh, where is God in all this? Each of them would say they had a crisis of faith where they had to believe God more than they had ever believed him before for anything. Some of them had been 15 years beyond that original prognosis, some eight years beyond that original prognosis, but each of them had grappled with that being on the brink of death with a cancer prognosis in their lives. And every one of their stories had some common threats. For example, every one of them said it was terrifying and frightening, and every one of them also said but God met me in the midst of that terrifying, frightening time. Each one of them would say that God gave them direction. He gave them next steps. He helped them know what to do in their walk through that season of life. And every one of them were given 
bonus years where they had a life after that prognosis and after that walk in the valley of the shadow of death kind of moment, and they live life differently as a result of what they experienced in that dark valley. That was the story of Hezekiah. Except Hezekiah didn't do well on the other side of the healing that God gave him. I want you to stand with me today as we read 2 Kings chapter 20. The first 11 verses is going to be what I read today to make up this story as it's told. Chapter 20, verse 1 of 2 Kings. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, This is what the Lord says, Set your house in order, for you're going to die and not live. Now, Isaiah is not a doctor. Isaiah is a prophet. And a prophet of the Lord, if he prophesies something, must, it must come to pass. I mean, you can't live and still be a prophet of God if you're not 100% accurate with your prophecies, and Isaiah was. And so this is literally a death sentence to Hezekiah, and in his mind, it's unchangeable. Verse 2. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Please, Lord, just remember how I have walked before you wholeheartedly and in truth and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept profusely. And even before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I am going to heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life, and I will save you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will protect this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then Isaiah said, Take a cake of figs, and they took it and placed it on the inflamed spot that would be on Hezekiah's body, and he recovered. Now Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Isaiah said, This shall be a sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will perform the word that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? So Hezekiah said, It's easy for the shadow to decline ten steps, but have the shadow turn backward ten steps. Then Isaiah the prophet called out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back ten steps by which it had gone down the stairway of Ahaz. I hope you understand that that means that God moved the sun back 10 steps worth uh, in addition to perform this amazing miracle in the life of Hezekiah. We have a great God, don't we? He can do anything, can't he? Father, today, let this passage, let this story aid us, help us, encourage us when we find ourselves on the brink, when we find ourselves looking down at a very, very long drop and have no idea what's about to happen. Father, help us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death ourselves. No matter what that may look like, you're the same God that helped Hezekiah. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Well, this is Isaiah's valley of the shadow of death. By the way, that's not his own phrase. That's not his phrase. That's David's phrase. You know where the valley of the shadow of death is, don't you? You know it's in Psalm chapter 23 where David says, Yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. So it's a great phrase. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're at the point of death, but it means death is so close to you. Or death happens to someone around you so close that literally its shadow passes over you. You feel it. You know it. You experience it in some way. And this is... 
Hezekiah's moment with that shadow of death. Now, for most of us, we have no idea of a clear date as to when we're going to die. If we knew when we were going to die, we might live a little bit differently, huh? But we don't know when we'll die. And, and yet Hezekiah did know that he was going to be at death's door from the moment that pronouncement was made by the prophet Isaiah. We know he already had inflammation. He had a boil on his body. We know that much by the reading of, of the text and other passages as well. But he had no idea how, he's going, how long he was going to live until Isaiah said, you're going to die. Get your house in order. Do everything you need to do to get ready because you are going to die. Now, most of us don't have that kind of date on our lives, but we all know by human nature, we all are intuitively aware that we will all die someday. How many of you are aware that we all die? 100% is that, that, that death rate, right? 100% of all those that are ever born will die. And it's important for us to know that death is there at some point in the future. And if we are suddenly accosted by the possibility of death in our lives, we need to know what to do when we're in crisis mode. We need to know what to do and help other people when they are in their crisis mode. We need to look at Hezekiah's life to know what he did in crisis mode. Now, it's important for you to know that Hezekiah was a good king. This is not a king that God is disciplining by this sudden pronouncement of death. He's a good king. He's a bold leader. He's courageous. He follows the Lord. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 18, there's a description, a one-verse description of Hezekiah's reign. And it says that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. So he was pretty strong. Nobody like him afterwards. Nobody like him before him. He's an incredible king that was focused on God. It's got an interesting timing to it, this, this kind of season that he's in with God. And the timing is that he's just finished an incredible victory over the Assyrians, where Sennacherib, the wicked ruler of the Assyrians, comes against Israel, against Judah, and uh, God intervenes on behalf of the Israelites through the prayers of Hezekiah and Isaiah. It's a huge military victory that came about because an angel of the Lord was set and slew 185,000 Assyrians in the night. So he's coming off that great victory and seemingly everything is going well with his kingdom. Everything is going well with him as king itself. And yet this pronouncement of death is on his life. Now before we get into the details about how he handles this issue of imminent death, I want to talk to you about a theology of suffering. A theology of suffering is a way to understand why bad things happen to us, why sometimes we get sick and die, why is and what is behind all that. Some people have a theology of suffering that says, if something bad happens to my life physically, it's because I have done something wrong. That somehow God is mad at me. He's angry. He wants to take me out. Or I don't have enough faith in God. Or I haven't trusted him about one thing or another. And so I have this horrific affliction in my life because I haven't done good things with God. And my response to you is, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what was going on in Hezekiah's life. He was a good king. He was following God fully at this point uh, of this pronouncement. He was one that prayed and God intervened in powerful ways. He's not suffering because of something that he did wrong. God is not wanting to just take him out. 
got news for you, a news flash for everybody. If God wants to take you out, he would have taken you out. He has no problem doing that. He's, a, he's got the ability to just wipe us off the face of the earth like that angel did the 185,000 Assyrians. Your theology of suffering should have not anything at all to do with how well you've lived life or how poorly you've lived life. The truth is sometimes we can afflict ourselves in how we live. We can uh, compromise our own health and obviously that's not a wise thing to do. But that's not what's happening here, and that's not a good theology of suffering. Sometimes horrible things happen to good people. We live in a sin-filled, sick world, don't we? We live in a world filled with death and sickness and illness. Your theology should not be that it, you caused it, that you brought it upon yourself, nor did Hezekiah feel that way. But sickness sometimes comes upon us to test us. A sickness sometimes comes upon us to teach us lessons for a lifetime. That's what those ladies who are called the bosom buddies would say to you today if they were standing on this stage, God taught me so much through this. God tested me in so many ways through what I went through. And so it is with Hezekiah's life. He has some things to teach us. He has some lessons for us to learn. I want you to notice what they are. First of all, notice that Hezekiah immediately upon hearing the pronouncement from the prophet, began to focus fully on God. Whatever else he was doing leading up to that moment in terms of 100% focus, all that went out the window and he began to be completely focused on God. In fact, the very memorable phrase in verse 2 is this, then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Turned his face to the wall. I call this a face to the wall moment. Have you ever had a face to the wall moment where you knew no one else could help you? At the moment he had that face-to-the-wall moment, Isaiah was still in the room. The great prophet was still there. It may have been that others of his counselors were in the room as well. Those who would have helped him physically were in the room as well. But Hezekiah turned away from the prophet. He turned away from his counselors. He turned away from any healers that could have been there and faced the wall because he knew what he was facing was something that he could only go to God for. Face-to-wall moments are important moments in our life because we realize we can't do anything about what's going on in our life, and we need God, and we need Him desperately, and that's where Hezekiah was. I suspect that we have more face-to-wall opportunities than we know about, and sometimes we don't really realize how face-to-wall those opportunities are, and we need to learn what it means to face-to-wall and just focus fully on God. By facing the wall, basically he said, the prophet can't help me. He's already made the pronouncement. The doctors can't help me. They've already done what they could do. My counselors can't help me because they don't have the ability to do that. I just need to do business with God. Notice that Hezekiah is not ranting. He's not raving. He's not, he's not angry. He's not upset. He's just weeping and praying because he knows only God has the answer. He's not running away trying to escape his death. He's hanging on one thing and one thing only, and that is he has a God that he worships. He's able to do more than anyone else can do with his life. And that leads me to make a statement that you should remember when God is your only hope, you become focused and personal with God. I know there are times in our lives when we realize deep down God is our only hope, but we're trying to do a lot of other things on our own. Sometimes we just need to take the shortcut to God. We just need to say, 
I, I don't need to be trying to do anything about this. I need to go directly to God in my own face-the-wall moment. Now, Hezekiah is not the only man that knew how to do that. Jehoshaphat, another king in the Old Testament, when faced with armies that were about to surround Jerusalem, he began to make the statement. He said in his prayer, for we are powerless, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that prayer. That prayer. We're powerless, and we don't even know what to do, but God, our eyes are on you, and we're not looking for anyone or anything else to rescue us. Face the wall moments. Look at God and say, we're powerless, but you're not. Those are important moments in your life, aren't they? I don't know how many of you have had moments like that, but those are moments that you don't tend to forget because often God makes himself very, very real to you. Now, Jehoshaphat's prayer that I just shared with you reminds me of the gospel. Did you know that? And the reason it reminds me of the gospel is because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come after realizing that we are powerless to do anything about being right with God. There's no way that we can please him. There's no way that we can bridge the gap between sinful mankind and holy God. And so we say, in essence, in our prayer, we're powerless. We can't fix it. We're separated from you. We're sinful human beings. Religion doesn't do it. Being sincere doesn't do it. Trying to do good works doesn't do it. We're powerless. We don't even know what to do. So our eyes are on you. That's really what the gospel is. And when you put your eyes on Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you, you're doing what you need to do to bridge the gap between sinful mankind and holy God. Hezekiah is doing that with physical things. Jehoshaphat was doing that with the threat of the armies coming. It shouldn't really surprise us when we encounter, as believers, tough times and tough circumstances where we have the opportunity to put our eyes fully on God one more time. You did that when you came to faith in Jesus. And just as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, so also walk in him is what Paul said. And I'm just saying to you today, when those moments come in your life, you know what to do because you've already trusted Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. You don't know what to do about your life yourself, but you do know that he can do something about it. Your eyes need to be on him. Focus fully on God. When I talked to the ladies in that really special group who'd gone through the cancer about their face-to-wall moments, they expressed a range of first responses. Some felt stunned and unbelieving. They just thought, how could this be happening? I mean, I've had a clean bill of health all my life until this moment. How can everything change in just a moment? Others were, were experiencing a strange calm. I ought to be more upset about this. One said, I ought to be in more of a panic, but I have this peace that has been moving over my life. Another one felt like that the surrender was already there. She said that my prayer to God was, if this is it, then thank you for the life I've had, then this is it. That unusual kind of surrender to God. Practical thoughts also like, what about my family and what about insurance and all the things that they needed to deal with physically speaking? But every one of them said that, that it was common in their life. And as they compared their stories, they said God's grace was there and it was there in abundance and it was enough to help us through every decision we had to make. It was enough to, to face it and not face it alone, but face it with God on our side. That grace was present to help us in our time of need. You know, I'm very grateful for that. 
And I do believe that God gives you all the grace you need for every challenge that you have in life, but you don't really feel that grace until the moment of that challenge is happening. For these ladies, that's what was going on. One of them said, and summed it up for all of them, I knew I was not alone. I knew God was with me. And we know God is always with us as believers, but God is especially there with us when we go through dark times and difficult times. That's why David said, Yea, that I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. So focus fully on God. Secondly, Hezekiah's life showed us that you can evaluate your life. Hezekiah did that. In verse 3, his prayer says this, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart. And I would say desperation leads us to evaluate. I believe that every time I'm desperate about something in my life, that I'm wondering how that something got there, I evaluate my life. I think through what have I been doing and saying and how have I been living? Now, Isaiah's statement leads us to believe that he is naming reasons that he ought to be able to keep living. In other words, Lord, I've been faithful before you. I've done everything you've wanted me to do, and I'm telling you that that I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. He's evaluating his life. The Bible tells us he's also weeping bitterly. He's examining his life for anything that he needs to find. He's probably also thinking about things that we would think about if we were faced with this kind of death sentence. Here's some thought that I had that Hezekiah may have had, may not have had, but should have had. Have I lived life without regrets? Have I done and said what I needed to do and say to those around me? Will I live honorably? Will I live life with such an honor that I will glorify God? Will I leave an example for other people to follow? Have I lived life well? I mean, we should not have to wait until those face-to-wall moments to ask those questions, but those questions become important to us when we're in those moments. But desperation also leads us to remember. And Hezekiah was doing some remembering as well. Now keep in mind, Hezekiah and Isaiah had walked together as king and prophet long enough to where they saw God come through time after time when they faced certain death from a military assault upon them. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 20 and so and following, you find this amazing story unfolding about God's rescue of them when Sennacherib was trying to basically freeze them out and uh, keep them from having water and keep them from having food. The Bible says, But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed about this and cried out to heaven, and the Lord sent an angel. This is one of those face-of-all moments. So God sent an angel and destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. That would be Sennacherib that did that. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. This is where you can let your imagination run wild. What does it look like for an angel to kill 185,000 soldiers? But what it ought to do is let you conclude that God's faithfulness and God's power is enough. And if I'm facing certain death from the pronouncement of a prophet, I'm going to remember that this is the God that can do anything and change any circumstance. And you and I need to remember that when we pray. Matter of fact, 
Every great prayer in the Bible is usually preceded by a pronouncement of God's power. Oh, Lord, I know that you are able to do above and beyond what I can even imagine. So, therefore, I ask you to do this. That's the way we pray. We pray remembering what God can do. And I think that's what Hezekiah is doing. He's remembering God's great exploits. You're the God that parts the sea for the Israelites. You're the God that makes the sun stand still. You're the God that makes manna fall from heaven. You're the God that raises the dead, the God that calms the waters and the storm. You're the God that can do anything. And he is the God that can do anything. We ought not struggle with whether God is able to do something. Our focus on, on, ought to be on, will God do something in my life? God, will you do something for me? Remember, he can do that. Remember, you're not prepared, but remember that he is prepared for everything that you'll ever encounter in your life. He knows the end from the beginning. Number three, Hezekiah also learned that you should empty yourself completely. The Bible says in verse three that Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the key to this prayer, I think, is embedded in these very, very simple words. It's a, it's a word in the Hebrew that says great welling and great weeping. In other words, Hezekiah is completely and desperately emptied. I have nothing to offer, and I have no way to change this. I'm just empty. Being empty is not a bad thing to be. Being empty is not a bad place to be. For those of us who follow Christ, Really, we need to be better at emptying ourselves instead of being full of ourselves. Yes, instead of feeling like we have something to contribute to things that only God can do. So here he is, he's weeping bitterly. He's emptying himself and any hope he has in his own life. Yes. Jim Cimbala, great pastor out of New York City, made this statement. He said he prayed 22 words and then he broke down and wept bitterly. But sometimes weeping is the best kind of praying. Because God understands the language of tears. I love that line. Have you ever been in a place where you couldn't even pray, you just weep? Does it encourage you to know that God knows and understands the language of tears? He understands what it means to, to go through dark valleys of life. He understands that you don't even know what to say or what to pray or you don't know how to respond to the things happening in your life. He understands who you are, understands what you're going through. Even though nobody else has any way of knowing it, God knows everything about your life and he understands it when you're going through there. 22 brief words. And God answered that amazing prayer. I think the prayer is amazing, not because of its length or its brevity, but I think it's amazing because of the depth of surrender. He's just saying, I've got nothing. Only you can get this, God. Yes. And the greatest times in my life have been after I've prayed that way. Amen. And I think some of those greatest times come because I realized I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything to offer. I didn't have any more strength. I didn't have any more wisdom. I didn't have anything I could do on my own. I had to have God intervene in my life. And I would say in comparison to surrender, praying is easy. It's surrendering that's hard. It's difficult to say, I'm giving up on my plans. And you know, the New Testament is very encouraging to us when we come to the place of not even knowing how to pray that we should still try to pray, but when you don't even know what words to pray, the Bible has the amazing encouragement out of Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. It assures us of this. 
In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What an incredible assurance. The next time you don't know what to pray, the next time you have nothing to offer God, keep in mind that the Spirit of God inside of you will intercede on your behalf with groanings too deep for words. That means you're not saying anything because you have nothing to say. But the Holy Spirit knows how to pray, how to represent you before the Father, and He's doing that every moment of your life. So here's Hezekiah. He's emptied himself. He's prayed. He's weeping bitterly, and God answers his prayer. I think this is amazing. Go back to verse 4 of 2 Kings chapter 20. Make sure you have this fastened down in your mind. It says, even before Isaiah left the middle courtyard, the word of the Lord came to him. So Isaiah knows that Hezekiah has turned his face to the wall. He says, I have nothing else to offer I've given him the truth that God gave me to give him, and now I'm just heading out. So he's gotten out to the middle courtyard, presumably going outside the walls themselves, and the Lord speaks to him before he gets out of there. Now, I don't know how long it takes to say 22 words. I don't know how long it takes for Isaiah to walk from the inner court to the middle court, but I know it's not long. And I know that short prayer brought a really short, quick answer from God. Not the typical answer, mind you. It's not always this quick. But quickly he said, Isaiah, get back in there. I'm going to heal this guy. That's pretty powerful. I'm just thinking today about the brevity of that prayer and about the effectiveness of it. In verses 4 and 5 and 6, you see it written out. He says in verse 5, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I'm going to heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add 15 years to your life. And I will save you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will protect this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. What an answer to a prayer. An incredible story of intervention. But there's a big question associated with this thing. How is it? And why does God declare one thing and then do another? And how is God sovereign but seemingly changing course on this prayer? And what about God declaring judgment upon the Ninevites, but then once Jonah preaches and they repent, he relents and saves them? Well, why does the sovereign God say you have not because you ask not if he knows all things? Could it be that desperation moments are divinely orchestrated to teach us to depend on God like we've never depended on him before? Could these moments be tests of faith that help us battle panic, set aside fear, and hold on to God like we've never held on to him before? You remember the life of Job? Remember how desperate he was and how, how he cried out to God and how he leaned on everything he understood about God. But remember how much God taught him through his sufferings that he wouldn't have learned otherwise? You remember any of those moments in your life when you've gone through tough times and God's taught you in ways that you wouldn't have learned otherwise? The Bosom Buddies told me that in their desperation, 
They found new things happening in their lives. They learned things about God. They, they learned to trust in ways they never had before. They said that their desperation gave way to joy and a calm assurance. They were aware that God was absolutely present and working in their lives, even though their body at the moment said otherwise. One of them said, I determined to let this battle with cancer make me better, not bitter. Another one said, I was afraid, but I was grateful for his presence. And still another one said, God told me I've got this, and I believed him. And she had a coffee cup made with the, I got this, God's got this on the coffee cup. She showed it to my wife and I at that dinner, and my wife said, I'll take that cup from you if I, if I can. We all need to know that God's got this. And I love that phrase because I know I don't have this, and I know you don't have this. We don't have it, but God has got whatever needs to be got. God actually rescued Hezekiah. But from that moment on, Hezekiah responded in the worst possible way to the healing of God in his life. And it's a lesson we need to learn today. And that's the fourth point, final point today. Find a place of humility. Find a place of humility. When God works in your life in a powerful way, don't get arrogant. When God works in your life in an interventional way, when God answers your prayer, when God does amazing things around you, don't become proud. It's not you, it's God. It's God that's done that in your life. It's God that healed Hezekiah. It's God that rescued him from the Assyrian armies. Find a place of humility. Verse 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 25 sums up the latter years of Hezekiah's life. And it said this, it said, Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. And to me, it's the most stunning reversal of direction you can imagine. Humble, 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 because he's about to die. Turns his face to the wall, weeps bitterly, emptied himself. And then when God answers so quickly, so powerfully, so supernaturally, he's puffed up with pride and arrogance. And later on, dignitaries come to visit. They want to know the story of Hezekiah's healing, and he shows them his riches and the beauty of his castle instead of showing what his God has done in his life. Maybe Hezekiah thought it was his good life that gave him favor with God, but his good life didn't keep him from that pronouncement, so it certainly didn't give him that good moment of healing. And his pride and his arrogance that he had after his healing was so bad that it undid all the good he did during the years of his reign. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine letting everything God did in your life unravel because of your pride? But our friends that I've introduced you to, those ladies that battled cancer together, they lived in a far different way than Hezekiah did. In fact, they teach us how to live today based on what they learned while they were in the valley of the shadow of death. They chose the humble life. They chose the grateful life. They, uh, they chose the meaningful and the fruitful life that we can all have. And when I visited with these ladies and, and have continued to visit with them in the day since, certain verses came to the surface that I'm going to share with you, three of them, that became so important to them during that time. The first one is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your pathways straight. Each of these ladies to an individual says, it takes a lot to trust God with your health, and with your future, but a crisis can help get you there. 
crisis can help you realize that no matter what your plans are, no matter how wise you think you are, how hopeful you think you are, we have to trust in the Lord and not in our own understanding. That our future is not in our control, but it's in His control, and it's okay that the future is in His control. The second verse they reminded me of as they talked was Romans 8, 28. I jokingly said to an earlier service that we might be at risk at overusing Romans 8.28 until I realized you can't overuse Scripture. You just need to memorize it and live it. And what does it say? Read it with me. You know what it is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? Say it like you believe it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I hope you know that verse really well. And I hope you know, even more importantly, the God behind this verse who is able to cause all things to work together for good, no matter what they are. And every one of these ladies referenced Romans 8:28 because the after look of their journey was very different from the look going in. They looked back and saw all that God had done. And the life that these ladies live today is different from what it was before. All of them minister to others going through the same kind of thing. They're gifted teachers, they're loving leaders, they're precious family members. And among them, they would all say that trivial things become even more trivial now. And they don't waste time doing things that are not worth their time because they know what it means to have big rocks in their lives that they need to focus on. They know what it means to have a more limited timeline so you don't waste your time on doing things that are not worth it. One of them said this. She said, I will never worship the same way again. Every moment I have to worship God is a gift from God, and I'm grateful for that. So there's an appreciation. There's a gratitude for what they have after walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And then finally, most each of them, almost each of them referenced the verse in Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What a verse. A verse that acknowledges the preciousness of life and the fact that we may not have months and years. We may only have days or hours. But teach us to number our days. Teach us to live as though we're on a lease on life from you, God. That you give us every heartbeat that happens inside of our heart, that you give us every breath of air that we have. We belong to you. We need to, to number our days so that we can live in a wise way. What a great word of wisdom from both ladies. And they would challenge you to believe God, to trust God with every moment of your life, but to never take your focus off of him. And that's what Hezekiah would say if he could come back and preach his message today. With all the regrets he has for not living humbly, he would say, live humbly before your God. You know, today, I don't know where you are, but I know this. I know that all of us walk through valleys and dark times in our lives, and some of us have faced the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us have physical ailments that we worry about, and sometimes we worry too much about some things in our lives. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that God's got this, that God has the ability to cause all the things in your life to work together for good. And that God wants you to trust him with all of your heart, with all of your life, beginning with trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. Three invitations I give you today. The first invitation is to stop at a decision station today. Talk to someone who will pray with you about what you're going through in life. 
And I would say to you, if you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then pray Jehoshaphat's prayer. Lord, we have no idea what to do. And we are powerless. So our eyes are on you. And I want to encourage you to look at Jesus Christ on that cross, paying for sin on your behalf. And make the decision to give your life to Christ. We will talk to you about that at the decision station. Secondly, I invite you to come to guest reception just outside the center exit doors across the hallway. I would love to meet you and welcome you to our church, tell you more things about Cross City Church. Third invitation, bring someone with you as you come next week. Listen, people need hope and they need help, and we have it here through the Word of God and through the gospel of Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that. Would you stand with me as we have a closing word of prayer? Father, today I am so grateful for the life of Hezekiah and the story that you've given us here in his life. Thank you for those friends of ours that have walked through similar valleys of the shadow of death. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your graciousness when you come through in our lives and preserve our lives. Thank you also for your graciousness in giving us eternal life. When this life is over, we have something even greater on the other side because of you, Lord. And I want to thank you for that. Lord, today, let those who need to focus fully on you be able to do that from this moment. Because of these words, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless.